That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Cara Denisio. And I'm Dr. David Miller, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting it all together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of health care. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you need to know about. Hello and welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. I'm Dr. Dave. And I'm Dr. Kara. And today we are here with Dr. Talia Marcajani. Oh my God. You did did great with her name. I had to Nailed it. Can Italia, can you like do the official version, please? Marca Gianni. See, that's just so much better. Yeah. 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 So much better. Okay. Awesome. Well, we're going to have fun. As you can tell, we're already having fun. So today's episode will be really fun. But what what else are we going to learn about? Uh, Yeah. So Dr. Talia is joining us today to talk about anxiety, which I think is uh, probably no one listening that hasn't dealt with it at some point of their day. Uh, so Talia is a, uh, a naturopathic doctor at uh, Blue River West Wellness in Toronto. And uh, you also can find her with some exciting new programs coming up um, on Facebook. She's got a great group called The Good Mood Project. And uh, we are happy to uh, dive into this with you today, Talia. So welcome. Thank you, guys. This is exciting. And yeah, so- Speaking of anxiety. <laughs> So are you suffering with a little bit of anxiety right now? Uh, 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 nerves, which on Nerve. the spectrum is, yeah, we're, we're just, we're in anxiety territory for sure, though. Yeah. Well, tell us about it then. How are you feeling with your little bit of nerves? Well, I have a little bit of a, uh, some of the physical sensations of anxiety. So a little bit of the butterflies in the stomach, the dry mm-hmm. mouth, a little mm-hmm. bit of a, not quite a racing heart, but a, but a little bit of heart palpitations. Heart palpititos, many ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's about the thing you? about anxiety, though, right? Because at, at some points of time, a little bit of it is actually a really useful tool. That's right. Well, it's all in the reframe. It could be excitement, uh, but anxiety is a little bit, has a bit more of a negative connotation. So it usually is associated with some worry and some negative thought processes. Um, whereas excitement's more like I'm ready to face an opportunity. Is it, you know, there's a little bit of, oh, here we go. This is going to be fun. I think of anxiety as more of a, it comes with a sense of dread usually. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more on the excited side. But so what's you, on, go ahead. So, yeah. Sorry. What's on, so what's the good side of anxiety? Maybe you could start by talking about like some of the good beneficial aspects of anxiety. Cause it's kind of like a, uh, it's like a higher energy state. And maybe you could just talk about some of the good sides of it. Well, without anxiety, Dave, we'd all be dead. <laughs> it's all of our. <laughs> it's one of the one and of that the many bad naturopathic podcast. Next week is depression. <laughs> Good talk. <laughs> well, anxiety is so our ancestors, uh, two billion years of ancestors. Uh, I I came up with that number, but I I'm, I think it's not wrong. Um, use this anxiety response to essentially survive from danger. 
So the world is a very dangerous place. I don't know if you've ever gone outside, but there are saber-toothed tigers, traffic, deadlines, snakes. Children. And sinkholes, children, rabid children running around. And, <laughs> and so basically our, our body has evolved this very important mechanism to get us out of danger called our fight or flight or freeze response or our sympathetic nervous system response. And sympathetic is not the act of, of being, you know, uh, feeling sorry for someone or having sympathy. It's just another name for our, our physiological response that gets us out of danger. So if I walk, am walking in the woods and see a saber-toothed tiger, my heart starts racing. Uh, all of a sudden, my, my muscles are filled with blood and nutrients, and I'm ready to fight or flight. Probably flight, I'm going to be completely honest. If I saw a saber-toothed tiger, I don't think I'd fight it. Or freeze and play dead so that the, the danger can, uh, can pass on by. And so essentially, without that response, we would have been eaten long, long ago. So it's a very important response. Um, the only problem is when either the danger doesn't leave, so we have this kind of saber-toothed tiger just hanging around us all the time, which a lot of us do, or when our response is primed to always be in that mode, even if there aren't any saber-toothed tigers around. Right, because it can be a perceived threat too, right? You, there doesn't have to be an actual tiger. That's right. Well, we can have this elevation in our in our fight-or-flight response where we are, our, our nervous system is a little bit more primed on the fight or flight side of things. So on the other side of things, there are rest and digest um, nervous system, which is where we're, it's exactly the opposite. And it's kind of like a seesaw, it toggles from one to the other. So when there are no tigers, we usually feel calm, relaxed, our digestive system works, our immune system works, um, and we're able to sleep. We, it's kind of like a shavasana at the end of a yoga class, where you feel kind of like... Someone's got to drag me up off the floor. But if some of us are just operating with a baseline that's toggled a little bit more towards the side of fight or flight. And so Talia, what got you interested in naturopathic approaches to mental health and anxiety? Um, was it patient stories coming in or yeah, how, how did you get to where you focused your clinical practice right now? So as an intern, I started noticing that all of my patients had some sort of mental health concern, no matter what they were coming in with. And then I was also really interested in the mind-body connection. So if someone came in with gut issues or fatigue, what was actually going on in their minds that was contributing to those physical symptoms? Um, and then I just started getting more and more interested in what makes us happy. So it's, it's kind of like I'm interested in things that are solving a problem for myself um, or are answering a question that's difficult to answer. Like what, you know, what actually makes us happy? What makes us healthy? Maybe you can have really great physical health, but if you don't have good mental health, what's the point? So it's really like the window through which we experience the world is our mental health, I think. And so the more I can help people live optimal mental health, the better. And then also, you know, when it comes to physical symptoms or concerns, if somebody's dealing with depression or anxiety, we have to address that first before we can start addressing, you know, their diet or their exercise routines. Now, I mean, it's it's a bit of um, a give and take with that because those things are also going to help our mental health. But, you know, it's really we can't achieve much if we're not mentally healthy. Like depression and anxiety will take us down if we if, you know, if we don't have support. Yeah, if you're in a state of anxiety, it's probably going to be difficult to implement all the other things that you think would support that person, right? 
Totally. Yeah, exactly. So I started getting really interested in that. And then I also have my own history. Um, nothing really serious in terms of diagnosis, but there are a lot of things that I learned in naturopathic medical school that could have been very helpful you know, when I was an undergrad and dealing with a lot of stress and, um, and a lot of really difficult things that people in their early 20s go through that I see a lot of patients come in with that just don't have the tools uh, to, to help them through. And so if someone had told me about adaptogens when I was 22, it would have made a huge difference in my life. And so it, it's just really feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm equipped to help a huge population of people that um, with this knowledge um, that I didn't necessarily have help with at the time. Do you want to tell us a bit uh, what adaptogens are for people that don't maybe know what adaptogens are? Sure. Adaptogens is a secret to, to existence. So our fight or flight response has a couple of stages. So we have our, our acute phase reaction, which is our adrenaline and noradrenaline, or in Canada and Britain, uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine. So these are more of our, there are catecholamines, they're neurotransmitters, which means they act very quickly in our brain. And, um, and so they're like the anxiety chemicals. They make our heart race. They make us like our pupils dilate. They make us feel anxious. And that's when we see the saber tooth tiger in the woods and all of a sudden we get this response or somebody scares us and you feel, oh, you know, my heart's racing. I feel super scared. Um, now, if that danger goes away or the thing that scared us goes away, usually we calm down. But if there's a little bit of stress, like a chronic stress, our body starts to create um, a hormone called cortisol. And what hormones do is they change our genes. So they're longer term responses. They're changing all of the cells in our body to express proteins that are going to achieve a certain goal. And this goal is to just help us through stress. So our body's like, okay, there's saber tooth tigers around all the time. We are just in saber tooth tiger territory right now. And so we have to be creating proteins that are going to help us through this time. That means we need more blood sugar. We need to take energy away from our immune system. We need to stop sending energy to the parts of the brain that, that prime memory. You know, we don't need to learn long-term facts. We don't need to learn cranial nerves and, um, you know, memorize our multiplication tables. We need to learn where the danger zones are, where the saber-tooth tiger dens are located. So our memory is going to be focused on getting us out of danger and learning about all the things relevant to this danger. And so cortisol is is just kind of floating around in our bodies anytime that we're chronically stressed. And so in modern society, that's deadlines, it's traffic, it's getting the kids off to school, it's having a boss that, you know, is toxic, it's having a relationship that you're not happy with. It's all of those chronic stressors that cause worry and frustration and just keep our body in a state of higher amounts of stress. And cortisol is not a bad thing. Cortisol actually is one of the hormones that keeps us it wakes us up in the morning and it, and it, and it is involved in motivation and it, it's involved in actually keeping inflammation low as well. And it helps keep our blood sugar steady. So it does a lot of important things in our body, but we're not supposed to be pumping out massive amounts of cortisol all the time. And after a certain amount of time, uh, we stop responding to that cortisol and we start to develop cortisol resistance. Kind of like you might've heard of insulin resistance um, in someone with type two diabetes where your cells essentially just stop listening to the hormone. It's like, no, too much of you around. We're just going to start ignoring you. Um, kind of like, uh, you know, somebody that's nagging you. Like, you're just going to be like, okay, I heard enough of that. And so what adaptogens do, uh, they help us adapt to stress. So 
there's actually some research. I always tell this story to my patients and they're like, oh. Um, so actually how they identify if an herb, and adaptogens are herbs, they identify an herb as an adaptogen by, uh, uh, sub, uh, by giving it to mice who are undergoing a, a swim test, a stress test. So basically they take mice or rats and they put them in water, and they make them swim. It's very sad. Trigger warning if you don't like hearing about animals having to swim to exhaustion. But they make these. <laughs> it's very sad. Not swim at the spa. Think of like Mickey Mouse, yeah. And so, <laughs> so they make uh, Mickey swim until he can't swim anymore. And that's extremely stressful. Imagine if someone threw you in a pool and made you swim until you were physically exhausted. Um, they take the mice out. When they're right about to drown, they let them recover. They give them an adaptogen and they make them do it again. And so the first time they make them swim without the adaptogen, they have huge amounts of cortisol in their bodies. Their bodies are like, hey, everything that's going on in our body right now, we need to halt the production of everything else that's happening in this body and just focus on swimming as long as we possibly can to survive. And so tons of cortisol are being pumped out into the bodies of these mice. Um, when they give them an adaptogen, the mice swim longer they, they're less exhausted once they eventually take them out of the water and they produce less amounts of cortisol. So it basically helps them, um, it protects their body against the effects of cortisol, helps them deal with the stressful situation better, and it also protects their bodies against all of the hormonal effects of stress. So diagens are like, like the magic elixir of our society. They, they get us through deadlines and traffic and they protect us from all of the effects of stress. So, you know, cortisol is anti-inflammatory, but when you are resistant to it, you start to notice more levels of inflammation in your brain. So there's all kinds of things going on in your body where you're getting higher amounts of inflammation. So you're noticing like low cortisol effects in your body, but then you still have tons of cortisol being pumped out into your system. So your immune system's affected, your digestive system's affected. Like Dave, you're the gut gangster. So you know about this. Um, and I'm sure you talk to your patients a lot about how cortisol affects their digestive system. Mm-hmm. Then you add some, yeah. Um, so you add some adaptogens into the mix and then that seems to calm that response down and just, it optimizes our stress response. There's a, I'm actually reading a great book on adaptogens right now. And uh, they say on it, the world is a very stressful place to plants. But if you think about it, they're rooted. They can't just run away from something like we can, or they can't throw like a right hook. Like, Mm -hmm. and they're exposed to, you know, animals eating it or stepping on it or sun or rain or wind. So they have had to evolve to have these chemicals to fend off stress. And we are just hijacking that from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's like rhodiola is one of my favorite adaptogens, and it grows in these really adverse conditions, right? It's like cold weather, high on the mountains, low oxygen, and it helps us deal with the stress effects of cold, low oxygen. And, and it, it, so it's really cool because, like, it, that, what's that book called? Oh, it's uh, called Adaptogens. Uh, I think it's uh, what uh, another ND told me about it David Winston. Adapted in terms for strength, stamina, and stress. It's cool because I was reading something too about how our plants have this way of communicating with us. And so when a plant experiences stress, so like grapes was a perfect example. So grapes produce an antioxidant called, called resveratrol. So that's like the whole idea of like drink tons of wine and you'll live forever. And they produce resveratrol though when they're when in arid conditions, so when there's not enough water and in dry conditions. So there's a bit of a stress on the grape plant. And then they start upregulating this resveratrol production. So it's kind of like, then we eat the grapes and the resveratrol in our body 
creates a bit of a stress response, but an adaptive one. So it triggers these genes in our body that produce antioxidants. So resveratrol is an antioxidant because it makes our body produce antioxidants. Um, so it's called hormesis, this effect. It's kind of like something from the environment produces a stress that, that um, allows our body to uh, respond, but in a way that's greater than what's needed to overcome the stressor. So like cold therapy, you give yourself a little bit of cold and your body responds by making all these antioxidants and you feel really good and it increases new brain cell production, all this good stuff. So that happens when we eat the grapes. It's like the grapes are communicating with us like, okay, the environment is dry and too hot. And therefore, just so you know, we're giving you these extra antioxidants to kind of deal with uh, the stress of the environment. Yes, it's like this kind of two-way communication between us and plants. Plants I love think, us. Uh, you, your, uh, study, your studies on Mickey Mouse or on the, the mice study, <laughs> I think they've also studied where else they, they study adaptogens is in, I think it's like the army or like submarine mm. pilots or something um, who are in an occupation where they can't sleep for a long period of time. And I can't remember if the Russian there's Russian yeah. military studies. Is it rhodiola or ashwagandha? It's rhodiola, which because Siberian. Yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And rhodiola. despite the lack of sleep, uh, the peop- the men who took the the rhodiola or ashwagandha, I think I read to, um, had better cognitive function. Right. Yeah. 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 I heard. That, yeah. The Russian studies, rhodiola Russians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. If well, you want to study you can push it a little bit longer, right? Like they just allow you to, to, to recover and push it a little bit longer. Is that like a oversimpli- oversimplified thing? Yeah. They, 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 they keep you treading water longer, <laughs> like Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Mm. So if you're, yeah. So yeah, they do studies on uh, Russian military or mice treading water. Yeah. And you're like, okay, if it works on those people, we're good. It's going to help me get through traffic in Toronto. So obviously, um, Pushing a little longer is good, but we're, we're going to want to get to more root cause things too at the same time. So what else are you, how else are you assessing your patients or, or um, where do you go from here? So anxiety, like we all have anxiety, right? Because it's, it's primed into our, our get out of danger response, our fight or flight response. But it becomes an issue when someone's anxiety, someone just operating at a at a level where their subconscious mind, so their limbic system, the amygdala, which is going to be the name of my firstborn child. Should <laughs> 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 be super chill. Yeah, yeah. Um, beautiful name. <laughs> so amygdala is like a marble-sized um, brain center in our limbic brain. It's associated with emotion, and that is what where our stress response comes from. Well, where our um, our anxiety comes from, and. It, it so uh, it's so you know some of us are just operating where there's this this subconscious belief I guess or this subconscious understanding that the world is a hostile place that there are saber tooth tigers around every corner which is like if if you think about it, it's kind of true like the fact that most of us don't have chronic anxiety disorders is kind of remarkable right like the fact that we can um, that we can that we can cognitively talk ourselves down from all of the possible dangers that we're surrounded by. It's pretty cool. And that's actually should be the default. But what happens with anxiety is perhaps there's been a childhood experience that's taught them that the world is a hostile place, 
or their nervous system is just primed for more fight or flight. So it could be there could be some genetic components to that, or it could be that there's these um, physiological vicious circles happening where their body just can't calm down. Their brain and body are having a difficult time resetting to baseline. And basically, like a big part of it is so the, the conventional treatments right are, are medications. So either the benzodiazepines that just kind of sedate you and turn off the amygdala or SSRIs, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that they often prescribe in in depression. So that's based on the theory that anxiety and depression are two sides of the same coin. One is more an external expression, like anxiety is more of the extroverted version of depression, which is more of the internalized version. And I see a lot of mixed anxiety and depression. Often when you're anxious for a very long time, you collapse and you feel depressed, or the anxiety itself depresses you because you can't engage in your life normally. Um, and then cognitive behavior therapy is another conventional treatment, which is which involves bringing the prefrontal cortex, so the front part of your brain, which is involved in cognition and planning, it brings it online. So it's the whole idea of trying to talk yourself down, like, okay, there are no tigers around, everything's cool, you know, my boss gave me a dirty look, but maybe my boss is just constipated, and it's not about me, you know, <laughs> maybe my boss is me, Dave, and it's cool. So... But but often, like when we're in that anxious state, we can do all the CBT, the cognitive behavior therapy possible. And it's just we just can't access that really powerful response that's telling us that there's danger around, especially if our brain has been primed to be to, to respond to danger like that. So a big part of what I do is trying to send this signal of safety to the body. And that involves creating a safe environment. So scheduling in time for relaxation managing the really overt, obvious stressors that we can control. We can't control traffic in Toronto. Maybe we can control how stressful our commute is, though. And so looking at all of these different aspects of someone's life that could be triggering their anxiety and, and making life more stressful and trying to calm that down, resetting that cortisol response circuit where we're, we're resistant to cortisol and trying to um, decrease the amount of cortisol that's being released in someone's body so essentially that perceived stress. So, you know, there's a stressful event, but they're producing a ton of cortisol to deal with it because they're, um, we call it the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis is sort of just jacked right up. So they're, they're kind of adrenal access. But then also letting the body know that things are safe. So a big part of that is looking at like, so one of the biggest stressors in our evolutionary history was starvation. So a scarcity in terms of food and shelter and sleep. So if you're not sleeping enough, your body is kind of like, what's going on? Why are we not sleeping? Is it because there's something, there's an issue with our environment? Are there, you know, predators that we have to watch out for? Is there not enough food that we have to hunt for and that we have to start hunting at night? Why are we not, uh, why are we not getting the eight hours, nine hours of sleep? Um, you know, and so, but then again, anxiety can also trigger, it can also affect sleep. So it becomes this vicious cycle. So the more we work on kind of sleep, it resets our, our system to let our brain and our, our subconscious brain and our body know things are cool. Everything's good. We got lots of time to sleep. And then looking at our, our nutrient levels as well. So if there are nutrient deficiencies, and so nutrient deficiencies in the sense that, you know, we may not just not be making the neurochemicals we need like if we have deficiency in some b vitamins are we not making enough serotonin or dopamine but even the the fact that that having enough micronutrients vitamins minerals sends a signal to our body that you know we have abundance like that there's safety in the fact that we're eating enough 
And so a big part of that is blood sugar because anytime our blood sugar dips down, our body can regulate it on its own by using cortisol. So cortisol is a glucocorticoid, which increases glucose and keeps our, and so, you know, if, if you're in that fight or flight state, you need a lot of glucose in your blood, a lot of sugar to feed off of so you can fight or flight, which takes a lot of energy. But if your blood sugar dips, so let's say eat a big, uh, you know, cap and crunch bowl, my blood sugar is good for breakfast. My blood sugar is going to skyrocket um, and and eventually will crash because my body's going to release another another hormone called insulin to send my blood sugar down back to normal, but it can overshoot and it can go too low. And having low blood sugar is going to trigger cortisol to try and bring, bring my blood sugar back up. So if I'm on this blood sugar roller coaster all day, that's going to send a signal of stress to my body as well. So I, I'm trying with my patients, first of all, to balance blood sugar. Anxiety is going to throw our blood sugar off, but thrown off blood sugar is going to feed back and worsen anxiety. So trying to make sure that blood sugar is as stable as possible. So I think of like blood sugar, when it's stable, it, we feel physiologically stable, grounded, calm. So it's a huge thing that I begin with. It's like one of those subconscious signals to our body that things are safe, things are cool, we're not starving, we're good. Do you have any sort of quick hits that you that you like to do for blood sugar? I, I could go on. Like I, I here, let me give some uh, a reason why I'm poking you with this one a little bit. I've mm-hmm. found uh, blood sugar to be <clears throat> hugely important and treatable um, to a large degree because I find it one of the core sort of physiological conditions of like optimum or good. Like if just like you're saying, and I haven't actually heard that many people talk about it. So I'm interesting that I'm interested that you're talking about it and happy that you can say it uh, and go into more detail than me. But basically <clears throat> it's like, a, it's, like it's just like a, a core pre-existing physiological condition for health and happy, right? Normal mm-hmm. blood sugar. So um, do you want to go on and talk maybe about some of the things that you'll, uh, you'll implement or try with people? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a huge thing. I suffered from it for a long time. Like my family used to have this uh, saying, like, never get between Talia and her food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like get out of my way trying to get to the fridge. Because... My dad says never eat on an empty stomach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's like a good Italian saying, too. Yeah, don't fight when you're, when you're hungry. There's T-shirts that say, like, sorry for what I said when I was hungry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you get, you you enter into a fight or flight response when your blood sugar goes down. And then you feel the physical sensations of anxiety. But it's it's not always a very obvious sensation. Like, if I feel hunger throughout my life, I've, I've learned that the sensation of a gurgling stomach or um, that kind of empty stomach feeling means I need to eat something. But you don't always feel hungry when your blood sugar is low. You might just, you might feel tired. You might feel dizzy. You might feel irritable. You might feel um, like sweaty. Uh, Some people will get worse in heart palpitations. So it's being able to recognize what that means. And sometimes that happens after blood sugar is already dipped. So you're not noticing on the way down. It's already when it's like tanked. Mm -hmm. And so patients often will wake up not hungry, but they'll have disrupted sleep. They'll be waking up at 2 a.m., unable to sleep and they not, won't necessarily feel hungry at that time they wake up maybe feeling nauseous which is a big uh, clue and then they'll need to eat something around 10 o'clock and, and usually have a craving for something sugary because that's the best way for us to get our blood sugar back up 
Then they often notice that they binge eat at night. So nighttime is the time that they're most hungry. And they feel the most hungry actually after they've eaten a meal. So they'll eat a normal dinner, the typical broccoli, rice, chicken, and then they'll, they'll feel starving afterwards where the body's finally like, okay, I can eat now. So what I'm trying to do with, with um, those people is help them recognize those signals that that actually means you're, you need to eat. Like if you're feeling dizzy and nauseous and shaky, that actually is a sign you need to eat. It might be a little bit too late to eat chicken and, and salad because your body at this moment is craving something carby. So what we have to do is prevent that from happening, which we call it, I call it front loading calories. So eating more earlier on in the day. And I usually just make it simple. We start off by within the first hour of waking, eating a big breakfast with about at least 20 grams of protein in that meal. And I make a very, I've throughout my years in clinical practice, which is what we talking about wasn't <laughs> or, or in, still in the novice half years. Half a decade. Half, half a decade. Sounds good. Half of an entire, yeah, almost a baker's dozen. <laughs> yes. Half a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've come to realize that so we need like specific recipes because some people are like, well, I like oatmeal in the morning. Like that's awesome. Oatmeal is the best. But the oatmeal where there's like little dinosaur eggs that turn into dinosaurs when you put <laughs> water on them, you know, those sugar dinosaurs, that's maybe not the best for blood sugar. But oatmeal where you add flaxseed, and nut butters. And, and then I usually give a recipe that shows someone how to get 20 grams of protein into a meal. Now, the protein and, and the fat in that meal are keeping blood sugar steady um, because they're allowing glucose to be absorbed into the bloodstream more slowly than if you're eating the dinky dino oatmeal. Is that even what it's called? I don't know. And I also tell them to eat it within the first hour of waking if they can. So not everyone in this, it's sort of overriding that, that it's almost like an intuition that you don't want to eat because blood sugar dysregulation makes you feel nauseous it's kind of overriding that and having a few bites of food to trigger that rest and digest arm of the um, nervous system so that you can start absorbing and digesting food and that you start to feel hungry and so also our adrenal access our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access wakes up in the morning so our circadian rhythms go on this, um, have this pattern where cortisol levels are supposed to rise. Uh, there's just a peak about an hour after we wake up and then they're supposed to just kind of crest. And then they're supposed to decline throughout the day and then be lowest in the evening. And then they're supposed to be non-existent during the nighttime when we're sleeping. So we're trying to mimic, we're trying to bring up our, um, and one thing that wakes up our circadian rhythms is food. Because we have a clock, like little mini clocks in our liver that tells us it's, it's daytime. So eating and sunlight and movement are all signals that it's daytime. So waking up the body by having protein in the morning and eating within an hour of waking is really useful, I find, for getting blood sugar back on track. I usually tell patients, like, if your meal lasts you five hours, so if it takes you five hours to feel hungry again, you're in a good place. Most people are like, what? I need to eat every two hours. Mm -hmm. So that tells me we need to, to work on blood sugar. Where do you, uh, do you see fasting as problematic then when, with respect to, I know there's lots of great health benefits, but with respect to mental health and anxiety, how, how does that fit in? Well, it's yeah, it's there'll, yeah, be, there'll be people talking about that for sure. Cause yeah. fasting is, you know, getting, gaining and, some traction. And we're like talking lots about tigers and, you know, evolutionary wise, mm -hmm. there's lots of periods of fasting too. So I'm just curious at how you kind of synthesize all that knowledge. 
Yeah, it's it's well, okay, so everybody loves intermittent fasting. It's the the panacea for everything. So it's it's a good thing. I mean, so intermittent fasting is gonna teach your body how to fast. Or if you're on a blood sugar roller coaster, you might not be able to. Yeah. You have, you at least have to be able to fast for eight hours while you're asleep. If your body's not used to that, it's gonna wake you up in the middle of the night. Um, either to eat or you're you're going to get this huge cortisol surge in the middle of the night that's going to wake you up. And you may not wake up hungry, but you're going to have disrupted sleep and have that 2 to 4 a.m. wake up that a lot of people with adrenal dysfunction get. Um, so there's definitely research for resting your body for 12 hours out of a 24-hour period. So maybe from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. not eating and giving your digestive system a chance to rest. But what often people are doing is so there's some research on the 15 hour 16 hour fast i think it was um uh, bulletproof radio dave asprey that coined this or somebody developed this it was loosely based on some research done by a guy called sachin panda in california um, who does research with fasting he calls it time restricted feeding because it's been studied in mice so it's really like feeding and then they should do time restricted eating for humans um so he's done some research with uh, mice on 15 hour fast, but he does a lot on 12 hour fast as well. Now his research though, so he would just give the mice food for a shortened eating window. So either 12 hours or nine hours. And then I think it got shortened somewhere along the line to eight hours. So people were doing the, um, the 16, eight fast, which means you fast for 16 hours and then you can feed for eight hours. But they usually time it so most people want to eat dinner with their family or go out to eat and have drinks. So they usually stop eating at 8 p.m. and they start eating at 12. So they're skipping breakfast. And I think the last research I looked at shows that if you're not really a breakfast person, it might not be a bad thing to skip breakfast. Um, but it's the most important meal of the day. I think for regulating blood sugar, it's really important. And I'm always looking for those little symptoms they're telling me that someone's blood sugar might be dysregulated right if they're waking up nauseous or they're getting a lot of anxiety symptoms and, and cravings and getting a sugar crash around 2 p.m getting feeling wired in the evening and waking up in the middle of the night i'm looking at okay maybe we need to start regulating their blood sugar by by front loading their calories so bringing more of their calorie consumption earlier on in the day so sachin panda's work though um it was it was about eating earlier on in the day so those eight or nine hours of eating started off an hour on waking. And then you would stop eating. I guess if you started at 7am, you'd stop eating around 2pm. How's my math? So it would be like, yeah. So if you're doing the nine hour fast, you'd stop eating at four, right? But nobody wants to do that, but that would be better way to to intermittent fast if you're trying to regulate blood sugar yeah that's, um, that's that's my understanding of the research too that physiologically it's better to front load and then stop early but i think as in a convenient western society most people have just not listened to that fact and uh decided to eat dinner and skip the breakfast Exactly. Yeah. So everyone's like, well, it's kind of easier this way. And I don't really like breakfast because breakfast is kind of gross. And um, I get to drink coffee anyway. So it's all good. And I get to eat whatever I want at night. So it just works better socially. But I think and so that it could be good for some people. I have doubts about whether it works in women. Some research has shown it makes women, at least female rats. So as similar as human women are to um, rat women. Um, it might actually increase insulin resistance once they start refeeding. 
I think it's just because for a female body uh, in the reproductive years, fasting signals like, ah, we should not be reproductively viable because if we have a child and there's not enough food, we're going to die. The, the fetus is going to die. So, you know, uh, you know, women will tend to start losing hair, libido will tank, and then they'll stop having periods. Whereas I think men, I mean, they can be reproductively viable until their last breath. So their body's just like, eh, like, <laughs> like, like, we'll just lose weight and everything's good. And like, hopefully we can create a child right to the end. Uh, whereas women, it's like, no, I gotta, I gotta, you know, um, support this baby for nine months. And then I have to feed it for another couple of years. If, you know, if we're following evolutionary history of what it would be like to breastfeed children and and then raise them. So I think whenever our bodies are in a fasted state, it may not have the same responses as it would in a, in a man's body. And a lot of research is done on either just both genders or, um, or both sexes and, and, um, and men. But I mean, it's always about checking in on how someone feels. If someone feels amazing, intermittent fasting, they're not getting any blood sugar dysregulation symptoms. They're feeling really good energy. They're not noticing sugar cravings they're when it's time for meals they're able to eat sort of the healthy meal they've planned for themselves their meals are balanced when they're eating them um it could work really well i think it's all about looking at what, what someone's state is and if they're in a in a state of hpa axis dysregulation so that adrenal dysfunction probably not great to add another stressor like all of this is about that hormesis that we talked about where when you add a little bit of stress it could actually help your body get stronger. It's like exercises like that. Some antioxidants and plants are like that cold therapy. So you, you impose a little bit of stress on your body and then your body meets that stress by um, responding in a way that helps it overcome that stress and gives you health benefits on top of that. So fasting's like that. But if you're already stressed, I always have the analogy with patients. I'm like, it's like you're carrying a bucket of rocks. And so in the bucket, you have all these big stressors and then you add fasting to that bucket. Is it helping you hold the bucket in a way that's that's um, with more muscle power or is the bucket now too heavy and your rocks are spilling everywhere? So, yeah, I think it's, this is where it's key to that. We understand that sometimes stuff works really well for some people and some patients, and sometimes it doesn't work as well for others, which is, you know, it's really hard in a time of Netflix documentaries on nutrition mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, zealots <laughs> of this or that thing like this worked for me. So therefore, it is the greatest thing ever. Right. And I think, um, I like think if we were talking about a patient with an imminent amputation, maybe fasting is a good place to start. Might, maybe. Right? Yeah. But maybe not if your body's feeling like revved up on anxiety. Yeah. It's like, yeah, or it's I, some stuff. I, I think I want everything to be like black and white. I'm sure every naturopath here does too but there's a lot of gray and there's a lot of like just being practical and there's a lot of uh, clinical experience and there's a lot of just other stuff that comes in that means that um, we have to be careful when we say always fasting is amazing or always feeding is amazing. But um, I just thought that was worth bringing up because um, it's like a bigger concept. I think that we struggle with now because everyone's got access to information, but it's not necessarily contextual and expertise viewed information. Right. Or someone's agenda is like, well, I, I read about this great way to lose weight. So I'm going to start intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. And then when you sit down with them, you're like, mm, I think, you know, we got to 
deal with this anxiety first mm-hmm. before we worry about, you know, this attempt at weight loss might just worsen your anxiety or this might not be the route to weight loss. Maybe you need, you need to calm that stress response down first. So it's like triaging almost like it's what do totally we like that when you're like, I think when you see a good naturopath, <laughs> like, like us, uh, that's, that's what, that's what you're doing kind of, right. You're going, okay, well, what, what is the most important first, first obvious thing that we need to do to like either build and support or remove things out of the way of normal physiology. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so what we didn't talk about, uh, and I think it's kind of important is how, uh, like how people present, because we're talking about anxiety, which is sort of like a, a catch all sort of term for a lot of more visceral feelings. Maybe people have like, what, what's the main thing people come to you? They say, Oh, I, Talia, I have anxiety. Or do they come to you and say, no, I have this, particular set of symptoms or how do they sort of present to you? People will present with anxiety because they've been diagnosed with it, usually in childhood. So they'll, they'll be like, I always have had anxiety. And I think it's a journey for them a lot of the time to really discover what their physiological baseline feels like, because it just becomes normal, right? If you're always a little bit amped up, it's going to just be normal for you. And you're only really going to notice when you're having a panic attack or when things level up even more and you start to feel even more anxious. But I mean, the physical symptoms of, of anxiety are the racing heart, the nausea in your stomach, the sweating, the clamminess, the um, feeling dizzy. So like the real fight or flight symptoms. Um, but those are more like you're, you're veering now into panic attack, into panic attack mode. So you're getting into like the adrenaline response. But underlying that is our HPA axis dysregulation, which some people might not notice. And so I usually would draw this out for patients and they're like, oh, you, you know what's in my heart mm-hmm. <laughs> because it'll be like, okay, so you wake up in the morning and because your sympathetic nervous system is turned on and, and amplified, you wake up kind of with a sense of dread. So you might wake up with that adrenaline response or you might wake up groggy and fatigued or it might be both. You might feel fatigued at the same time as amped up, which is really confusing and awful. And, and in that case, that person who's prescribed anxiety medication will just feel tired you know, it's not going to level them out. Um, and then you might kind of drink your coffee or eat or something and kind of get yourself going. And then usually you'll have a crash around 2 p.m. when your cortisol levels tank again. And um, and so you might crave sugar, caffeine, or you're just you're kind of done for the day, but you have to push out another few hours at work. You get home, you're exhausted. You know, there's maybe hobbies that you would love to get around to, but you just don't have the motivation to do them. You don't really want to see anyone um, and instead, so you're kind of doing mindless things, uh, that will get your dopamine, which is like a, a neurotransmitter that helps with motivation. Um, that, that'll kind of give you this hit of pleasure. So you're kind of like scrolling through Instagram or you're on Netflix and then, and then you might get the second wind. And so a lot of the time people get this like five to 7 PM wind where they feel not really energized, but more wired. And then it's difficult to wind down and fall asleep. And then they may have trouble falling asleep or they might be so exhausted that they just crash and fall asleep. And then they're usually up around 2 to 4 a.m. And it might just be restless sleep. Some patients will be like, yeah, I get up to go to the washroom. And I always ask them, well, do you actually, like, do you wake up because you have to pee so badly that it's waking you up? Or are you up anyways? And then you're sort of like, okay, I might as well pee, right? It's, it's usually the latter. And so then they're, they're, or the, and sometimes they're, they're completely awake and can't fall back asleep. And they're like, I wish I could just wake up now because I'm wide awake. 
then they might be able to fall Mm -hmm. back asleep or they have this really restless sleep until their alarm goes off and it all begins again. And so basically this nice circadian rhythm that we normally have where our cortisol levels rise in the morning and then fall in the evening and then our melatonin levels start rising in the evening and then they fall in the morning. It's beautiful like double camel hump that we get throughout the day. It's all erratic and we wake up without this cortisol spike, this with cortisol rise. So we're like tired and just fatigued and our body's making adrenaline to make up for the lack of cortisol that response in our brain. And then we're getting, you know, just this sort of like anxious, worried, um, ungrounded day. And then we're, and then our cortisol levels are tanking again in the evening and we're trying to get that um, back up with some caffeine. And then we get a little bit of a cortisol spike in the evening where we feel wired, but not really relaxed, not really energized. And so I see this all the time. This is like a huge part of my practice. And so I'll usually draw it out for patients and they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, exactly. That's me. And so someone might have that entire picture and some just have one part of it or one piece of it. So like, you know what? I feel okay. I can fall asleep fine. I can stay asleep fine. But I wake up super groggy and exhausted. And it takes me like two hours to feel awake in the morning or everything's pretty good with my day, but I wake up at 2 a.m. every every morning and uh and I can't fall back asleep and I really need help with sleep because it's making me exhausted so there might be just one part of that that's in balance um now that might not be anxiety where you get a diagnosis from a psychiatrist but there's something going on with our stress response where it's not um it's no longer adaptive it's not optimized and so we're getting these symptoms throughout our day so talk to us about adrenals then it's a organ that's thrown around a lot now, which is good. It's getting the recognition it deserves. But um, yeah, talk talk to us about adrenals because I'm sure everyone listening who's you know had anxiety to some degree has also heard about these magical glands. Beautiful adrenals. Yeah, the adrenals that we don't really talk about in conventional medicine. So that's why I love them so much because I'm like, here we are, an entire profession that loves the adrenals. We do. So <laughs> we love them so much. They're a endocrine gland, which means they make hormones. They make a, ver- a variety of different hormones, but we'll just talk about cortisol for the purpose of this conversation. They're, and they're located on top of our kidneys, but they're not really involved in our kidney function. Um, they're just, that's just where they're located. And so, yeah, so during our stress response, we get this acute response, the racing heart, the adrenaline or epinephrine and norepinephrine, noradrenaline symptoms. Um, the really like obvious, like what we associate with anxiety or panic, that's our acute stress response. And then when the stressor is not removed or our body still thinks it's under stress, we start to make cortisol. So our adrenal glands pump out cortisol. And that's what um, essentially creates our, uh, our, our, our prolonged stress response, our chronic stress response. And yeah, and we, there's something that we call adrenal fatigue in naturopathic medicine. We're not supposed to say it anymore if we want credibility because it's not really about the adrenals being fatigued where, so this idea was that, you know, you'd be stressed and you'd go through this really acute stress response. And then you would go into the stress resistance phase where you're just tolerating your stress hormones and that's normal. And then you go into this exhaustion phase and the exhaustion phase was termed adrenal fatigue. So it was kind of this burnout, basically. You're exhausted. But if you're anxious, you could also feel anxious at the same time. You can, And so a lot of my patients have this mixed anxiety depression where they're totally depleted and exhausted and have really low mood and have no motivation and can't get out of bed. But at the same time, they're anxious. And it's a really horrible place to be in. 
Um, and so that would be sort of the exhaustion, adrenal fatigue phase. And it's not really, so this idea is that our adrenals are just not making enough cortisol, but that's not exactly what's happening. They're still making cortisol. We're just not responding to it. So it's more of a cortisol resistance, uh, which is sort of accurate when you think of the resistance phase. Um, and uh, it can like, get pretty complicated. Kind of like in, in diabetes, it's not always the pancreas's fault. I mean, it is in type one, but it's not always the pancreas's fault. It's, it's listening to the hormone that it's producing. That's right. Yeah, exactly. It's not like, oh, you have pancreas fatigue. Yes. You have <laughs> insulin resistance. Right? Yes. <laughs> so, so this is the idea. Yeah, I guess if you said you had pancreas fatigue, you'd get you'd be very incredible. On the internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people would not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it's, so base, but I like adrenal fatigue is an easy way to convey the message because you're really not getting the cortisol response that you should. And a big uh, part of that is inflammation because it's, in, it's very anti-inflammatory cortisol. It's like prednisone. Prednisone is like the medical version, like cortisone is the, um, the medical uh, um, equivalent of cortisol in our body. And, um, and so it's, prednisone is prescribed for anything inflammatory that we don't know the cause of. So it's like any kind of major inflammatory issue in the body, is pres- you're prescribed prednisone, and it does a lot of the same things cortisol does. Very anti-inflammatory. And cortisol shuts off our immune system. And our immune system is essentially what, bring, what creates inflammation. But when we're cortisol resistant, we start to get all kinds of inflammation because we no longer have these anti-inflammatory effects of cortisol. So hormones, like we like to think of things as like either good or bad. So cortisol is bad because cortisol will increase your blood pressure, which it does, increase your blood sugar, which it does, cause weight redistribution, so it puts fat on your abdomen and on your face and takes it away from your hands and your legs. So that's like a very attractive look that we all want. Right. But, and so it does all those things, but we also need it for a lot of things like managing your inflammation levels and managing motivation and brain function and focus and all that stuff. So um, it's about like, can we respond properly to it under the appropriate circumstances? And if we can't, then it starts to become pathological. And so when we have cortisol resistance, that's not a good thing either. And that usually is, I see that a lot with like depression, anxiety, um, and even other kinds of mental health conditions like bipolar, definitely OCD for sure. Like they're just, um, we're going to notice more inflammation in the brain, especially, which is going to prevent us from from functioning cognitively. And, uh, And that whole like brain fog, mental fatigue is a sign of inflammation in the brain which a lot of my patients have. For sure. So Dr. Talia, what, uh, as we are nearing actually the end of our conversation, which has gone like so fast, um, could you give our listeners just based on the adrenals or as you said, you know, bringing the body back to a place where it feels safe. Um, you've mentioned some things, especially surrounding blood sugar. What are other, some things that our listeners can kind of do at home if they're perhaps not working with a practitioner, what are some really important foundations that you implement right away. So everyone, if you're listening to this and they are you, and you notice and you notice these symptoms and you or your loved ones, do me a huge favor, please eat protein in the morning. 
come into my office and tell me I'm already eating protein in the morning and I just need to go a step beyond. <laughs> so <laughs> it would do me a huge favor. It would be a service to the world because the more we can reduce anxiety and mental health concerns, the better our society will be. Someone get Donald Trump a good uh, 20 gram protein breakfast every morning. Um, so yeah, like a good breakfast would be a great place to start where you're eating 20 grams of protein. So 20 grams of protein looks like it's not just an egg. It's like three eggs plus some really whole grain toast or adding a, a generous amount of nut butters to your oatmeal or a scoop of protein powder in your smoothie. So it's like, it's a substantial amount of breakfast of, um, of protein. And you can look at my, some of my resources for, for recipes. Um, and then a, a nighttime routine. So something that helps wind down. So in the morning, we want to raise our cortisol levels and we want to boost our HPA access. And at nighttime, we want to do the opposite. We want to set up our circadian rhythms for relaxation. So any kind of, of safety promoting exercise and safety or relaxation, whatever word you prefer. So um, it could be a meditation. It could be drinking tea and staring out the window. It could be putting your clothes out for the next day. So anything that seems like winding down like a, you know, um, like getting ready for sleep and, and priming your body for sleep. Um, and I usually recommend that at half an hour before bed, but if you can do even longer, that's even better. Uh, turning off all electronic sources of light as well. So all of the blue lights that stimulate our nervous system and actually increase our adrenaline and, and our cortisol levels and turn off our melatonin. And, um, and there are other things too, when you're feeling anxious acutely there are actually some strategies to to bring online something called the vagus nerve so we talk about the sympathetic para, uh, nervous system we also have the parasympathetic which is our rest and digest and there are things that can can kind of bring that online our parasympathetic nervous system and help us digest and help us sleep and the biggest thing the best thing is is deep breathing where your exhales are longer than your inhales so long slow exhales um, and inhales that go all the way into the belly um, and if you're really feeling uh, panicky you can also do an exercise called 333 you just focus on three things you can feel three things you can see and three things um, you can hear so just bringing your senses online and bringing yourself into the moment because most of the time 99.9% of the time, the present moment is a safe place to be and panic arises from a response that is triggered more because we're thinking of, of some of a future worry or a past trauma. And so when we bring ourselves into the exact present moment, the things that we're physically surrounded by, it usually helps to calm us down and shut down that, that fight or flight response. And I have others, but those are some to start great with. Great start. Yeah. And people can find more. Maybe at uh is it Dr. Talia N D? So did I get that right? Dr. Talia N D. Oh uh, no, it's TaliaND.com. Okay, TaliaND.com. Like yeah. And the yeah. and the Good Mood Project, which is you're gonna, and the Good Mood Project. You're gonna be yeah, doing some stuff uh, coming up soon, right? So by the time people listen to this, hopefully um, uh, they'll be able to get some more info on the Good Mood uh, Project. Yes, some some ideas for 2020. I also have a an ebook, um, the Mood Diet. So it has cool. a lot of recipes for some of this stuff. So yeah, is that on is that. that on your website? 
It is on Facebook currently. It should be on my website by the time we listen to this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> All right, Talia. Well, we didn't get to hormones, which I'm really gutted about. So we will need to, well, sorry, female hormones, which was on our list for today. So there, and, and probably a few other really big categories related to kind of naturopathic, you know, understanding or approaches to anxiety. So we would love to have you back. Mm-hmm. I think this oh, is still it. full of really great things and really framing it in a different way, because I, I do think uh, for mental health, the kind of physiological hormonal roots are often not addressed adequately. So I think it's a new perspective for a lot of our listeners. Yeah. And uh, the, the one thing just from my perspective that I, that I thought was really cool was the safe, the safe things um, seeking, uh, is it what we're saying? Like signals of safety to the body. I thought that's a real standout for to me. So maybe we could, uh, whenever we talk together another time, I'd like to talk more into that. I think that's really cool because it gives you, we're always told like don't do this don't do that don't do that but you, i like that you're saying like seek out these things i think that's uh that's a good new perspective too it's awesome yeah i like to add more than take away yeah people. <laughs> it's nicer yeah well it's easier right yeah. to have like a goal of something to like go towards rather than just run away from everything so i like it uh, I had fun. Kara uh, yeah. had fun. And we're going to talk again sometime. So thank you so much for sharing uh, your half a decade of wisdom with us. The entire half decade. My pleasure. Thanks, Doug. Okay. All right. Thanks, Doctor. We'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks. That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there.